Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. This week on the pod, a big injection for the Ontario auto industry brings the Prime Minister and Premier to Alliston. The NDP eject a veteran member of their caucus, some pretty aggressive ads from the Catholic teachers against Doug Ford, and we've got fresh polling on how popular Canada's premiers are. Spoiler alert, Doug Ford, almost at the bottom of one list, doing not badly on another. It's Tuesday, March 22nd, 2022, so let's get to it. Well, it isn't often that Justin Trudeau and Doug Ford make joint announcements, but that did happen last week when both the PM and Premier went to Alliston, Ontario, near Barrie. They were piggybacking on an announcement by Honda Canada, which will invest nearly $1.4 billion over the next six years to retool and upgrade their auto assembly plant in Alliston. JMM, how about the details, if you wouldn't mind? Uh, well, of that $1.4 billion uh, that Honda is investing, uh, about $260 million is g- coming from uh, Canadian governments. Uh, you have the federal government and uh, the province of Ontario each putting in about $130 million to uh, subsidize this investment. You know, it's going to ensure that the, the next generation of uh, hybrid Honda CRVs are going to be built here in Ontario. Uh, this is uh, Honda's best-selling vehicle in Canada. Um, you know, that, that's an important detail. Automakers... Uh, have lots of factories in Ontario, but they don't always necessarily make their best-selling vehicles in Canada. Uh, so this is a, a vote of confidence uh, by Honda uh, in the Alliston plant. Uh, you and I, of course, discussed this whole deal a bit more in this week's newsletter, uh, which people can subscribe to at tvo.org slash onpoly-newsletter. Yeah, let's give a little tease here of what we've got in the newsletter, because not every sector of the economy can count on multiple governments to pony up hundreds of millions of dollars to keep their engines humming. But the auto sector frequently gets this kind of treatment. How come? Well, you know, politicians from all political stripes uh, have simply decided over the years that uh, they want uh, Canada in general, Ontario very particularly, uh, to be players in the auto manufacturing sector, Uh, you know, if you go southwest in this province, right, like Windsor is right across the river from uh, Motor City, Detroit. And uh, there's been a, a very long history of uh, Ontario's manufacturing sector uh, growing and sometimes shrinking, uh, you know, in the same waves that uh, the Michigan auto sector does. Uh, but, you know, it's a big industry. Uh, we're not just talking about uh, the, the, the the final assembly of automobiles uh, like at the Alliston plant. Uh, there's a very large network of auto parts suppliers uh, that really only exist in Ontario because of those assembly plants. And that whole system uh, actually employs uh, more than 130,000 people in Ontario. Given the competition among numerous jurisdictions around the world, you know, the reality is if you want to play in this space, uh, you have to put up big money uh, either to uh, have these companies build here uh, or stay here. Different context, but, you know, not that different from uh, professional sports where, of course, uh, you know, in the U.S. and in Canada, you know, municipalities and, and, and regional governments have to uh, subsidize things like pro sports stadiums, even though... Um, 
let's just say that the civic spirit among professional sports franchises is not always uh, that big a thing. Uh, you know, many years ago, Australia decided it didn't want to play this game of subsidizing uh, the auto sector. <laughs> Predictable result. There is no more domestic auto sector uh, in Australia. It, they just they import their cars. Um, you know, Australia is still a, a, a very pleasant country, uh, especially if you've just come out of a Canadian winter, you might be thinking about Australia a lot. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, no auto jobs. Uh, you know, it, I, I'm not sure how much else there is to say, except that, you know, it's it's a big industry. It's particularly concentrated in Ontario. So Ontario politicians are uh, always going to be pretty um, attuned to it. But, you know, it, it might be worth putting these numbers in context. I mean, you know, manufacturing is still not growing uh, as quickly as the Ontario economy is generally. Uh, automaking is just one part of the manufacturing sector in the province. And, you know, just on the raw number of jobs, automaking actually doesn't employ that many more people than uh, Walmart does as a single company, as a for example. Hmm, that puts it in perspective. Now, I know you say it's an Ontario thing, but I think we can get even more specific and say it's really a southern Ontario thing, because there are lots of people in northern Ontario who may be listening to this saying, how come these kinds of big subsidies are not available to, for example, our mining or smelting sectors? Is politics at play? <laughs> and the answer is... Well, I mean... What podcast are we? Uh, of course, politics <laughs> is at play. Uh, you know, it's not the only reason that these investments are made. Uh, but the fact is, there are uh, lots of seats here in southern Ontario and relatively few in the north, reflecting uh, the very different uh, fractions of the, the province's population uh, that live uh, north and south. Uh, so if you're going to offer big subsidies from a political point of view, it makes sense to offer those subsidies where the political payoff is greater, where <laughs> when it comes to the voting day, voters are going to remember in, you know, those key swing seats all over southern Ontario, uh, you know, who got their checkbook out. Uh, I, I guess there's a, another factor here that is, you know, the, the, the industries in the north tend to be a bit more controversial than automaking. And I, and I'm, I want to be careful about how I say that. But, you know, like, hunting is a controversial activity. Mining, forestry, these are industries where there is an environmental controversy about them. And uh, every government in Ontario uh, has supported the resource sector, but I think there is a bit more reticence on that front. Um, but, you know, the, the, the overall point here uh, deals like this that, that keep the, the auto sector uh, here and and sustainable and, and well, economically sustainable anyway and and, and happy uh you know this helps maintain a sector that is as we say you know many many thousands of jobs in the province and and supporting a, a much wider network of businesses as well this was a big announcement for honda and for the government of canada and for the government of ontario so you won't be surprised to hear that the opposition at Queen's Park wanted to piggyback on this announcement as well by reminding the public that they have been championing the EV auto sector as well. And maybe we'll just take a moment here to talk about some of what they've got in their windows. Right. Uh, the uh, Liberal Party, uh, Stephen Del Duca, uh, reminded uh, journalists that uh, they have uh, announced a plan to bring back uh, electric vehicle purchasing incentives uh, for, for people who want to buy uh, electric cars, uh, $8,000 on the purchase or lease of an eligible EV, uh, as well as uh, $1,500 for the charging equipment. 
Uh, the Greens want to make the upfront cost of EVs less expensive than fossil fuel vehicles, uh, so they are uh, proposing even more generous incentives, up to $10,000 for buying a, a battery electric vehicle. Uh, and they also want to significantly expand charging infrastructure in both uh, public and private settings, including uh, parking lots, transit stations, highway rest stops, and, and homes, etc. And of course, the NDP have something on offer as well. Also, very generous subsidies in order to encourage this sector. And this is probably the point where I should point out, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, that I drive a Chevy Volt, which is a battery-powered car with an internal combustion engine. And uh, I did get a rebate on the purchase of that car 10 years ago. Uh, and it's still running very smoothly, and I like it a lot. And I particularly enjoy driving past gas stations when gas is at 100 uh, or dollar sixty-four a liter, as it is these days. Uh, in any event, there is um, well. Let's put this on the record as well. There is something fantastically ironic about this big investment by the Ontario government into the electric vehicle sector. Care to share? <laughs> well, of course, uh, this is the same government that came into office uh, insisting it wasn't going to subsidize Teslas for millionaires. They, in fact, uh, got brought to court by Tesla uh, because uh, their their early policies were so antagonistic, uh, both to uh, electric cars in general and that company in particular. Uh, they ended up uh, the government ended up losing a, a court battle over that. Uh, but you can listen to uh, Premier Doug Ford uh, boast, on the other hand, about how well the EV sector has done uh, since his government uh, took power in 2018. Well, first of all, thank, thanks for the question. And uh, just to set the record straight, since we've been in office, uh, electric vehicles have tripled in sales. So I guess that was a, a good decision. Well, that's an interesting boast. But what's left unsaid there is that all this happened despite government policy, not because of government policy. The Ford government's first year in office was spent basically ripping out charging stations all over the province, if I recall, JMM. Uh, that's correct. Uh, they they removed EV charging stations from uh, the province's uh, GO station network, uh, where people you know park their cars before they hop on the train in the morning. Uh, they have now started installing EV chargers in the uh, the en route stations, those those highway rest stops that uh, go along the 400 series highways. Um, but uh, you know. The, the premier is, I think, trying to change his tune a little bit, portray himself as a, a champion of the, the province's EV sector. Uh, but, you know, the numbers do still tell a tale here. And if you compare uh, Ontario's EV adoption rate to Quebec's or British Columbia's, for that matter, uh, on a, a per capita level, we are still lagging uh, well behind. I want to thank uh, the CBC's Mike Crawley for uh, uh, pointing out those numbers. So, you know, it, it's a bit rich for the premier to uh, suddenly portray himself as a champion of electric vehicles. Well, in Alliston last week at this same announcement, uh, there was some enterprising uh, mischievous reporter at the news conference uh, after Honda made the announcement. Uh, and the reporter asked Prime Minister Trudeau uh, what the Prime Minister thought of Premier Ford's original cancellation of the incentive programs for EV purchases now that the Premier was wrapping himself in the glory of electric vehicles and so on. And here's what uh, Justin Trudeau had to say about that. We're going to continue to make sure that auto, uh, automakers uh, invest in the jobs of the future and in the cars of the future uh, across the country. We're happy to work with Ontario on this great announcement today. Okay, what'd you make of that? Well, you know, it's a... Uh, a, a happy announcement. Everybody wants to say happy things. Nobody wants to, you know, uh, uh, be the skunk at the garden party. Uh, but it's also, I think, a really good example of sounding like you're saying something, like you're 
answering a question when in fact uh, the words that are coming out of your mouth don't actually have any content. (laughs) I'm always amused at how well these two are capable of getting along when there are huge announcements to be made, given that most of the rest of the time there's a great deal of sniping that goes back and forth between the two of them. But anyway, that's, I guess, just the reality of the Federation. I sound like I'm in Star Trek here. Uh, Let's move on here. um, The next item on our agenda today is that we're only a few weeks from the so-called Freedom Convoy that was uh, so disruptive in Ottawa and at the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor that the federal government took the unprecedented step of invoking the Emergencies Act. We all remember that well. On Monday, the government introduced new legislation that would help the province deal with any similar protests in the future without needing federal assistance. So, JMM, let's have the details on that. Uh, This announcement came from Attorney General Doug Downey and Solicitor General Sylvia Jones, uh, who have introduced the Keeping Ontario Open for Business Act. Uh, The law would give the government clearer powers to seize objects used in illegal blockades, uh, including vehicles, uh, and would also give the government the power to, for example, uh, cancel commercial trucking licenses for any vehicles used in an illegal protest, uh, as well as the licenses held by any corporation that owns the vehicle. So potentially very significant financial penalties for any company that allows its vehicles to be used in a protest like the one we saw earlier this year. Okay, if I remember correctly, though, one reason the feds invoked the Emergencies Act was because the federal law allowed them to force tow truck companies to help the city of Ottawa clear the streets. The feds had that power, but the province did not. Is the government changing that part of the law? Uh, Well, I should say that uh, as of this recording, I haven't been able to read the the actual text of the bill, so I am going a bit off of the uh, government's press releases here, but they do seem to be doing something even more straightforward uh, than giving themselves legal powers. Uh, They are just buying heavy tow trucks, I believe, for the OPP, Uh, so the province would be able to just move trucks itself without needing uh, a private company's assistance. Aha. Okay, so that is different. Uh, Any other aspects of this we ought to know about? The government says that this law isn't intended to be used broadly. They want to focus it on protests that disrupt the movement of goods at the border, uh, potentially around airports or in cases that uh, endanger public safety. Um, But, you know, this goes back to what we were just saying about the auto sector, right? I don't think it's unfair to say that the province really didn't take the convoy protests seriously until they blockaded the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor. But once that happened, things moved quickly. And it's no wonder because, you know, the Ontario and Michigan auto sectors are, are extremely integrated. So when the Ambassador Bridge was closed down, that actually shut down production in both this province and that state. So the the government is now moving forward to take these kinds of disruptions a, a bit more seriously. Are you trying to suggest that the auto sector has a considerable amount of influence in this province? Uh, I I don't mean to scandalize anybody, but yes, I believe that's true. (laughs) Okay, good. Phew. Good good that we clarified that. All right. Last week on the pod, you may remember we had an interview with Rima Burns-McGowan, who spoke actually quite beautifully about the difficulty of being an introvert in politics, and therefore she would not be seeking re-election for the NDP in her Beaches East York seat. This week, another NDP, MPP, will not be seeking re-election for the party, but the story is very, very different. Paul Miller, since 2007, the MPP for Hamilton East Stony Creek, was kicked out of the caucus by the leader, Andrea Horvath. He was told that he will not be permitted to run for the NDP in the June election. JMN, before I get you to weigh in on this, let's also put on the record in the interest of full disclosure, Paul is a cousin of mine. I'm related to a lot of people in Hamilton, and he's one of them. So full disclosure on that. Now, back on the story, what do you make of it? You know, uh, it it has not even been close to a secret in Ontario politics uh, that Miller and Horvath, uh, they may be of the same party, they may be from the same city, the same caucus, 
but they basically hate each other. <laughs> um, you know, they are both Hamilton MPPs, but they just have never gotten along. Uh, you know, Miller has said uh, in media reports that, you know, Horvath has been trying to, to kneecap him out of politics for a long time. Uh, and now uh, Miller alleges that uh, there have been allegations that have been, you know, trumped up against him uh, to try and get rid of him. Uh, Horvath, for her part, has always complained that, uh, you know, he's not been a team player, has made her life more difficult than it needed to be. Uh, for a time back in 2013, he was um, relegated to the, the literal backbenches of the legislature uh, because uh, he was he was heckling very loudly after uh, Horvath in an attempt to try and, you know, make the party look a bit more professional, uh, had, had told MPPs to cut it out and he was ignoring her you know, directives and, you know, she's the leader of the party. So, you know, he spent some time in the back benches. Uh, now he's going to be uh, off in the, the corner of the legislature reserved for independence. So, um, you know, clearly a lot of uh, bad blood between the two of them uh, that has finally uh, come to a head. Now, he's considering his options at the moment, and he has said one way or another he's going to be on the ballot in the next election. Obviously not as a New Democrat. But why don't you take us through some of the permutations that um, that his ouster from the New Democratic Party caucus, uh, what they portend? You know, it's not that different from some of the other uh, scenarios we've talked about uh, from Tory uh, MPPs uh, who were expelled from the caucus and, uh, you know, may or may not choose to run again. You know, if he ran as an independent, he would almost certainly take votes away from the NDP and make it harder for them to, to hold on to that seat, to win it again in the coming election in June. Uh, that could potentially make it easier for the Liberals to take the seat. Uh, but in this case, I, I wouldn't even count out the Conservatives. Uh, they have a former uh, Ticat football star in Neil Lumsden as their candidate. Uh, Steve, you wrote this part of the, the, the briefing for me. I believe the Ticats are a local sports franchise that you know something about. <laughs> you're, you're right up on Canadian Football League history with that one, aren't you? Yeah, very good. Yes, uh, the uh, Hamilton Tiger Cats are a franchise of some renown for about the last 100 plus years in the city of Hamilton. And I, I did take the liberty of checking the previous election results since this riding was created about 15 years ago. The Tories typically only take 20% of the vote in that riding. But Neil Lumsden has big-time name recognition in Hamilton. It's certainly possible he'll do better than 20%. And with a four-way vote split, if Paul Miller runs, for example, as an independent or as a Green, you never know, um, that, you know, that he, he could come up the middle. The next MPP could be elected with literally, you know, 30, 31, 32% of the total votes cast. So that will, uh, I think, really be one to watch on election night. And, you know, that kind of thing happens in elections, uh, you know, at least once every election, you see a seat where incredibly thin margins decide the outcome. Uh, but it's also probably worth mentioning that, you know, this is part of a division within the NDP, within different sort of members of the, or, or different parts of the NDP coalition, if you want to think of it that way. You know, Miller comes out of Hamilton's, you know, steelworker, steel union community. He spent decades working both in in the mill and then as a union organizer. And that is a really important uh, constituency within uh, Ontario's NDP. Uh, but, you know, progressive politics is always changing. And, and part of Horvath's success in 2018 was getting the party votes outside of its traditional bases, you know, outside of Hamilton steelworkers and, you know, northern forestry workers. Um, and, you know, on that point, Horvath probably wouldn't mind bringing in someone uh, maybe 
meaning no offense to your cousin, meaning someone more representative uh, of where progressive politics is going. No, I think that's, uh, I mean, that, on the face of it, that's uh, that's what's going on. He's a 70-year-old white man from Hamilton, and certainly the NDP is trying very hard to attract uh, a more diverse caucus, uh, more racialized uh, Ontarians, and so on. So yes, that is the, you. I think you've accurately put your finger on the tension going on uh, in within the NDP family and its coalition right now. Let's move on to some polling. Morrow Blue, the polling outfit, has got some fresh data out ranking the popularity of the nation's premiers. In first place, it's an NDP premier, actually. British Columbia's John Horgan. He's at 64% job satisfaction. Nova Scotia's premier, Tim Houston, is at 64% as well. And then we'll go down the line. The premiers of Quebec, Saskatchewan, New Brunswick, Newfoundland, and Labrador come next. And who do you think comes after that? Uh, that would be Ontario's own Doug Ford, who is uh, a last third from the bottom. Uh, his job satisfaction numbers clock in at 37%. That is down four points from the last survey. But he's still ahead of Alberta's Jason Kenney and Manitoba's new premier, Heather Stephenson, uh, both of whom are at 30%, uh, certainly not great. Right. However... If you go to Angus Reid, this is a different polling company. They've got a Premier's Popularity Survey out now as well. And they've got Ford not at 37%, but rather at 43% and up 13 points from their last survey. Still, he is only the sixth most popular Premier in the country on the Angus Reid survey. Um, You know, obviously different polling companies do their things differently, a mix of online and telephone, uh, when you're in the field matters, uh, the demographics that you survey matter. Having said that, I think we can ask these questions. Have you got any theories as to why the PC party, which Ford leads, is the most popular party in Ontario right now, but the leader of that party is, regardless of which survey you look at, among the least popular leaders in the country right now? You know, what has been true about Doug Ford through his entire career in provincial politics is that he's extremely polarizing. Uh, the people who love him really love him. Uh, and, and other people will, you know, uh, uh, close their eyes to, to some of uh, the flaws that he brings. Uh, but he also just inspires uh, an incredible amount of antipathy from, uh, you know, anybody who is not already predisposed to vote for the progressive conservatives, uh, which, you know, is it the majority of the voting uh, public, uh, you know, in these elections? Um, we have a first-past-the-post system, so you know it's fine to alienate you know the majority of voters. You don't need the majority uh, of people to vote for you. Uh, you just need the largest plurality. You know, in in our Traditionally, we've said something like 40% of the the votes need to go to your party to get a majority in the legislature. That is right. You get four to ten people voting for you. That's a majority government almost all the time. It's also worth noting that the PC party is the most successful political vehicle in 155 nearly years of Ontario history. Since Confederation, the PCs have won 24 elections compared to just 16 for the Liberals, one for the NDP, one for the United Farmers of Ontario, uh, which won the election in 1919. And no, I did not cover that one. So if, <laughs> if you are the leader of the Ontario PC party, you tend, history suggests, you tend to be a leg up on the competition right from the get-go. Right. And, you know, incumbency helps. And, and obviously, in the current context, Doug Ford will be running for re-election this summer. Uh, but, you know, it's no guarantee either. You know, most parties in government 
do get at least one re-election. Uh, not every premier and not every party does. Of course, Bob Ray did not. But, uh, you know, you also look at somebody like Ernie Eves, right? The, the, the Tory party won two terms in the 1990s. But when Ernie Eves uh, took over after Mike Harris retired, uh, he did not get uh, an election win in 2003. So, I mean, one way I, I think about the coming election, you know, the, the, the question to answer here is whether Ford's uh, polarizing effects will overwhelm the tendency for governments to get re-elected in Ontario. Right. Now, let's do one more item. The official election campaign is still more than a month away, but the Ontario English Catholic Teachers Association, well, they're not waiting. They are out there with some pretty tough ads against the Ford government. Have a listen. Children have been falling behind because of pandemic learning disruptions. And experts agree students need a learning recovery plan. And Doug Ford's plan, $12.3 billion in school cuts over the next decade. Larger class sizes and more online learning. We can't let that happen. Doug Ford had his chance. It's time for new leadership. It's time to vote for students. Message sponsored by the Ontario English Catholic Teachers Association. Now, what you can't see in that ad, but we'll describe it for you, is that the ad ends with a shot of a blackboard with the three major parties' names on it. Some chalk obscures the PC party name scratches it out, leaving just the NDP and the Liberal Party names on the board. The idea obviously being you voters should take the Tories out of the mix and only consider these other two options. You saw it. What would you think? Well, I'm sure that, you know, the Greens, the Ontario First Party, the New Blue Party, uh, the Trillium Party and, and others uh, won't be happy about being left out of uh, consideration. You know, this is a, a pretty aggressive ad for uh, this early in the campaign. I mean, we're not even technically in the campaign yet. Uh, but, you know, it's certainly a hint of what's to come. Uh, the Tories... I think, believe that they've got a good story to tell on education, right? Schools are, are back open. Kids are back in class. As of uh, Monday, masks are off. Uh, at least uh, kids have the option to, to take their masks off in Ontario schools. Uh, but, you know, this is also an old story. Teachers unions in Ontario uh, have not historically been a fan of the Progressive Conservative Party, at least not as long as I've been voting. And, uh, you know, these are the kinds of ads you would expect to see from uh, major teachers unions. The uh, wrinkle, of course, uh, is that there are new laws in Ontario, or at least since last year, uh, about what uh, teachers unions and, and their uh, affiliated groups uh, can spend on campaign advertising. Right. All right. We always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have that immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We do love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. You can also shoot us an email at onpoliticsattvo.org. Uh, we also want to remind you to read our weekly On Poly newsletter, which drops every Tuesday, same as the podcast. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash onpoly newsletter. And a reminder, the newsletter this week focuses on the auto industry announcement that was made last week in Alliston, which is where we are going to return for my quote of the week. Premier Ford crowing about the big investments his government is making in the electric vehicle sector. Have a listen. We're also putting uh, chargers in every single en route uh, right across the province. And as, as the market demands it, uh, we'll continue putting the, the chargers uh, throughout Ontario. That's Premier Ford demonstrating a very particular kind of chutzpah where he boasts about all the EV infrastructure he's building now, despite spending the first year of his time in office ripping all the same stuff out. 
I, I have to just add uh, very parenthetically here that the province of Ontario isn't actually uh, spending any money to install chargers at the en route stations. They are uh, letting uh, OPG, the, the provincial electrical utility, and the federal government uh, spend money doing that, but it's not tax dollars that the government is spending. Uh, sorry, wonky detail that was totally unnecessary. Moving no, on. No, necessary. A good distinction which people have come to rely on, that kind of nerdy distinction from you. So well done. <laughs> you know, I've got to keep that brand going. Uh, my quote of the week comes from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau from his speech last week introducing Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky uh, before he addressed a joint session of the Houses of Parliament in Ottawa. Listen to what he had to say. In Canada, we like to root for the underdog. We believe that when a cause is just and right, it will always prevail, no matter the size of the opponent. This doesn't mean it'll be easy. Ukrainians are already paying incalculable human costs. This illegal and unnecessary war is a grave mistake, and Putin must stop it now. That's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking in the House of Commons in Ottawa a week ago today. And that is this week's edition of the On Poly podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, we barely talk COVID at all today, but I'm going to keep the tagline anyway. As my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve.